for those of us who know Christ as Savior, there is that hope. Christ is our hope. And life and death, no matter what might happen under the sun, we can trust with a confident expectation that in His divine plan for eternity, and even in His plan for this temporary life of ours, there's hope. A blessed hope and promise that sustains us and that keeps us, even though it doesn't always bring clarity to the things that we are going through. It is a belief that supersedes our experience, and it is only for those who know Christ as Savior. And if you don't this morning, there is no hope or confident expectation of anything outside of Jesus Christ except for trouble under the sun the facing of judgment. And that's exactly what Peter addresses as you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. It is a difficult text for sure. I wrestled and struggled through the last two messages of chapter 2 and the character and nature of those false teachers and the eternal judgment that comes to them. And all of us are well aware of those who stand in that judgment or have passed on to that judgment, and that eternal judgment in reality ought to shake us to our core. Everyone will stand before a holy and righteous God and give an account. And there are consequences in that account that Peter has gone through in his letter to those churches we reviewed in chapter 2, and now we move into chapter 3, and he addresses again the issue of judgment in a way that in some ways brings hope to the believers who are experiencing the infiltration of these waterless springs, these false teachers who are leading again those immature Christians to a captivity of the flesh by false doctrines and false theologies that really surrounded judgment. In essence, they were teaching that there is no judgment. You live and you die, so you might as well live your best life now and pursue all of these sensual things that uh, appeal to your flesh. But anyone who knows the Scripture And anyone who knows the Savior knows that that is a false gospel that leads no place good. And yet, people that Peter writes to, and even people today, fall prey to that reality. We somehow convince ourselves that Christ has saved us from our sin, but not from ourselves, so we ought to pursue all of the pleasures and happiness that this world offers us under the sun. That's a truncated view of the Scriptures, and it leads you down to a life that uh, leads to a hedonism of sorts, vacuous of the promises and the assurances that we have of God that a better day is coming, and even far worse way, judgment comes with Him. So, as Peter addresses these believers in chapter 3, he again is addressing these false teachers, but he's also addressing the implications of their teachings on judgment and the eschatological future, what God has in store, spoken of both in the Old and in the New Testament. And of course, he is speaking again of the commandments that have a a built-in morality and ethos that is non-negotiable. 
God is the author of life, only He has the right to take it away, and all life must be lived on His terms. And when it isn't, judgment is sure. So Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them I are stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and save you through your prophets, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack or slow to fulfill His promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the good works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as You wait, You would bless us with patience. As we wait, You might bless us with perseverance. As we wait, You, must, you might bless us with confidence, knowing that the better day is coming, even though all of the signs and signals around us seem to indicate something difference. Because of the great salvation that we have in You through our Savior, Jesus Christ, and because of those great and precious promises delivered throughout the pages of Scripture, we have hope, we have blessing, and we have promise, and we are called to live soberly and righteous in this present age as we wait. I pray that You would equip us with everything that we need to wait, and I pray that as we wait, we would immerse ourselves in Scripture, not the vain philosophies of the world that turn our attention away from accountability, but the Scriptures that turn us to accountability, and accountability to a holy and righteous God. You sustain Your church today in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
that you sustain the Ukrainian church, whatever the outcome of the conflict and war might be. May you bless them for their hope and faith in Christ alone. May you assure them that you always keep your promises. So encourage us, Lord, as we again look at the false teachers that have infiltrated the local churches of Peter's day and age, and as he writes to challenge those doctrinal heresies, the twisted truth that they've introduced, that you would call your people apart to lives of separateness, to to lives of holiness, to lives of distinctness, with a clear morality and ethos delivered once and for all, for all saints of all times, and that you indeed would keep us as we wait for the fulfillment of your promises in the ultimate day when we see you and become like you as we see you as you are. Encourage us, Father, from this text, but also shake us in our spirits to the realities of impending judgment, faithful to the gospel, living by hope, and standing out as salt and light and a perverse generation that is godless. May we raise our children, our children's children, and this next generation on the promises of Your Word and the hope of tomorrow. And may You encourage us through this text that You're not done yet, and all things will be brought to pass after the counsel of Your will for Your glory. And we pray for the church throughout the world, even so come, Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the midst of the spiritual battles taking place in these churches that Peter writes to, he is pointing out some of the error and the teachings of these false teachers. He is revealing their godless character in very clear and bold language, unequivocally He talks about their end result and the condemnation that will come upon them swift that is even sure today. He warns the believers of being prey and becoming, again, slaves of corruption and sin, the very thing that they were delivered from through Jesus Christ. And He calls us all to a way of righteousness, and He calls us all to never turn back from that holy commandment of righteousness and morality and ethos, but to remain faithful, even in the midst of faithful times. And he says in verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Really interesting in its context, Peter addresses another letter that he wrote, perhaps in reference to 1 Peter. There's some debate about that. What I want to point out to you is that Peter is writing to those who were beloved, and that's a really important term. He is writing as a pastor out of love and concern for his people. He is writing to dear friends, those who are part of the body of Christ. And there's a lesson to be learned before we get into our message this morning that is critically important. There's this notion, pastors shouldn't ever deal with hard things nor say hard things. 
just preach the love of God in Christ Jesus and leave the rest of that alone. Pastors shouldn't be speaking about absolute morality and ethics that fly in the face of this culture. Just preach the love of God, and that's enough and sufficient. But Peter makes it very clear his pastoral heart meant that he had to deal with these false teachers, and he had to deal with their false philosophies, and he had to rebuke his people who were falling prey to those philosophies, and he had to call out in no uncertain terms the unrighteous. For to fail to do that is to blur these lines of distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous through Christ alone and the inevitable consequence of judgment. For failure to deal with judgment and consequence leads one to live their life, their best life today, with no fear of tomorrow. And our culture believes that if we can somehow erase some Judeo-Christian ethos or morality, this, this semblance that there is a God and we're accountable to Him. If we can minimize that ultimate eternal condemnation and accountability, the judgment that is coming, it really doesn't matter how we live. And Peter said, because I care about you, I'm here to tell you it does matter. And judgment is coming. Just as I struggled with the last couple of messages and the strong language that Peter uses towards those false teachers and those falling prey to those teachings, doesn't mean at all that it wasn't out of pastoral concern for your souls, the concern for whether or not you know the right way, you're living the right way, you're following what's been delivered for the saints once for all, separate lives. Not unto yourself, as these hedonists were teaching in the church, these false teachers, but lives unto Christ waiting for His coming. As Peter writes this pastoral letter out of care and concern for those who know Christ, he reminds us that these false teachers will face an ultimate consequence for their teachings, for their rebellion, and for their leading astray God's people, particularly those immature people and the churches that Peter writes to. He makes no bones, and nor should we, that these who were teaching false things and these who were corrupting the truth and passing out twisted truth, those who were engaged in the church and members of the church and were sitting down with God's people in the church were still nonetheless not part of that church. They were false teachers. And you could tell that by the content of their teaching. First John reminds us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us, or all are not of us. What a, what a stark reality. Even in the second and third century, even in that early budding church, that there were people in the church who didn't know for sure. Or there were people in the church who did know for sure, but were following fleshly passions and following these twisted truth prosperity preachers who were promising the best life now, 
with no consideration of eternity and the inevitable judgment that was to come. Peter, in his pastoral, clear, sometimes harsh language, says there is a difference and there is a consequence, and you must make sure. He said, I wrote you another letter, if that is First Peter, and we go back there, there's so much in that letter about persecution and how the church ought to live under the hand of persecution. And now, perhaps to a different set of churches, uh, some in a cross-section, he is writing about those who had slipped in, who are twisting truth, and he's going to deal with some of those specific truths in one sense, he already has. They are, they're teaching uh, 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 this, this pursuit of the flesh and whatever makes you happy kind of philosophy, and they're refuting that God is sovereign over all, that our Savior is King of kings and Lord of lords, and every single person will give an account at a day and a time of judgment. So as he writes this letter and pours out his pastoral love and concern, it's because he wants to stir up their minds. He wants to stimulate their thinking. He wants them to be able to discern truth from error. He wants their thinking to be sacred and, and holy and wholesome. He wants to keep them from falling prey to those who are only focusing on the here and now and ignoring the commands, the ethos, the morality of Scripture that is so perspicuous that even the unbeliever knows it to be true. And as he writes by by way of reminder, he's calling them to return to their common sense and their wholesome thinking, in fact, to return to the things that he has spoken to them to return to the Scriptures that have been expounded for them, to turn to the gospel that not only sets us free for eternity, it sets us free for today. Sin hath no more dominion over you. Make a choice, as he writes in this pastoral epistle. He says the very intent of the writing of his first epistle, and it's implied in the writing of this second epistle, is to stir up their minds. He writes in 2 Peter 1, Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Established means they are genuine believers. But he says, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. As believers, how then shall you live? Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things, the things that He has spoken, the things that He is teaching, this path of, 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 of spiritual growth and this, this notion that without spiritual growth and without the ministry of the Spirit and without biblical discernment, when we yield eternal judgment, when we are pulled away by the false teachers, when we're living according to the flesh rather than the Spirit, there are consequences, and He's calling them back in a spirit of repentance to remember the things that they had learned, and He was going to do everything that He could until God took Him out of this world to point these people to their blessed hope, the glorious appearing, as Paul writes, this young Pastor Titus, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus 
Christ. In essence, this isn't your best life now. There's a better day coming. Don't forget that. Stand strong. I want to remind you, and he says in this text, in the last days, false teachers and scoffers will come. As you know, they're here. He's calling them that to a, a sincere, a pure, discerning kind of mind. He's calling them back to Scriptures and truth and, and, and sanctification and godliness. And He's calling them, verse 2, to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's calling them back to, to remember predictions, both Old and New Testament predictions about the judgment of God, the coming of the Savior, the eternal nature of judgment and damnation and the accountability that began with the holy prophets, the Old Testament, speaking much of what he will address in this text as the day of the Lord. He calls them back to the apostles, those who would establish the church, and he calls upon them to remember the commandments of the Lord or the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the commandments, the gospel call to faith, and the moral and ethical demands of faith. Peter is wanting to make it perfectly clear that once you are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ alone, that faith alone that rescues you from your sin is not a faith that exists alone. He is saying your true and genuine faith must exist in how you live your life. And I'm calling you back to the clear commandments of Scripture and the moral demands of the Christian faith that were absolutely opposite of what the false teachers were telling them to do. Live your best life now. Grab all the gusto that you can. Live whatever way you live and whatever desires that you have in the flesh, fulfill them because there is no judgment there is no consequence, and after all, God loves you, and He just wants you to be happy. Can you hear the hiss of the snake? Can you, can you see the twisting of the truth? Peter says, I want to remind you of the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What do you mean, your apostles? He's probably referencing those particular apostles who had a critical role in the establishment of the numbers of churches in that area that Peter is writing to. They didn't have their own apostles separate from the rest of the apostles. It was those apostles who had a, a predictable and clear influence in the churches, bringing that that truth to them, that, that ethical, moral way to them, that gospel to them of such we find in the text. Apostle Paul was one of those people. He's saying, don't you remember what the apostles who, who helped found your church and brought you the truth told you? Don't you understand what's taking place? Peter said, I'm representing that group of apostles, and I'm calling you back to truth. And it's interesting, but it's always been the same. He's not dealing with people on the outside of the church. He's dealing with people who profess to be on the inside of the church, but they're not part of us. They've never been part of us, but they're here. We're reminded, survey of all Christian church history, 
will help you to discover an unsettling fact. The most pernicious and spiritual devastating assaults on the church have always come from within via subtle efforts to undermine the authority of Scripture. Now, interestingly enough, as Peter addresses these false teachers and as he addresses those true believers in these churches that he's writing to, he calls them back to remember the Old Testament Scriptures through the Holy Prophets. He calls them back to remember the New Testament Scriptures through the apostles and their writings. He's calling them back to the Word of God, and never in the history of this world has there ever been a spiritual revival without a clarion call to return to the book. Let's get back to the Scripture. That's what Peter is doing here, and he says in verse 3, knowing this first of all, be aware, this is of primary importance, the prophets of old and the apostles warned that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They are coming in these last days those who will be mockers of God. What does that mean? They're teaching exactly opposite the things that they had received, the things that they had heard, the things that they had acknowledged. They are teaching opposite, and in fact, mocking God and His moral and ethical demands and in a deliberately willful way have contempt and are making fun of men like Peter in all of their pastoral concern, warning his people of these same scoffers. I can imagine they were calling him an alarmist and a Bible thumper and some of those things that people call me, go figure, from time to time. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't tell you the truth. I would perform that you might like me. But when I stand before my Savior, whether you like me or not is not what I will be judged upon. <laughs> it will be whether or not I was faithful to the book. And that's exactly what Peter was calling these people back to, to the Word of God, making them know that there are scoffers coming in the last days, this, this, this time of the second advent or the return of Christ to this earth. And in their scoffing in these last days, these scoffers are following their own sinful desires. They're preoccupied with themselves. They're preoccupied with their felt needs. They're preoccupied with the church giving them what they want rather than what they need. They are preoccupied with their own fleshly desires. And when you live that way, with this uh, libertine kind of freedom that says that you can have God and live whatever way you want, the only way that you can reconcile and justify that in your mind is to do away with God or to do away with the judgment of God. And that's exactly what happened to these scoffers. They started to teach that there really isn't a judgment. God is not like that. He, he loves you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be filled, and He wants you to pursue these, these sensual desires, but we know that it's contrary to Scripture. In a world that believes in no divine retribution, in a world that believes that there's no rules, in a world that believes there's no consequence in breaking the rules, 
They must deal with the reality of God and judgment, and somehow they must find a way to erase the ultimate reality that all of us will face judgment, and that's what the false teachers were trying to do in the context of this passage. One commentator wrote about the ironic ring to the passage, writing that the adversaries who denied the second coming of judgment were themselves proof of its imminence. They were the very scoffers that the prophets talked about, the very scoffers that the apostles warned about. They were there in the church at this time. They're characterized this way. They they will say, verse verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? They're in denial that He'll come back. They're in denial, ultimately, of judgment, and they're working in that denial to justify their lifestyle, and they ask the question to believers, okay, we've heard about the promises of His coming, but where is it? We've been waiting a long time. Maybe it's never going to happen. Maybe you misunderstood that. Maybe Peter was wrong. And as he plants this seed of doubt, these false teachers, they're challenging the ultimate consequence in judgment for all people. They say and justify their questioning of His coming again, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There's no difference in the world from the beginning of time. Everything remains as it's always and already been. No way can He be coming again because He would have already. And they take note of the fathers who have fallen asleep, those maybe fathers, the early century, first-generation Christians who have passed on or are passing on at the time of this writing. And He says, they were teaching you that in their lifetime Jesus was going to come, but they've fallen asleep. So where is He? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The world continues to spin. Maybe we shouldn't trust them. Maybe there is no judgment. Perhaps they're even seizing on the very words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 when His disciples ask Him, what are the signs of your coming? And He unfolds and in those messages in Matthew, the signs of his, his second coming, and he reminds them that this generation will not come to pass unless all these things become so, and these false teachers are grabbing that and saying, these are the guys who told you that this generation wouldn't pass away, but they're all dying, so maybe he isn't coming after all. Maybe they misunderstood, maybe… Maybe they were lying to you. You see, when we begin to embrace some deistic kind of notion of God that there is a God and He created all this stuff, and then He took a giant step back and He just allows it to spin, there's no consequences and there's no judgment, and you don't have to answer to this God. He's, he's a separate God. He's not interested in the affairs of this world. He really doesn't care how you live your life. It is a false gospel, the very gospel being spun by these twisted teachers, but it's a gospel that only works if you can deny the eternal nature of God and the reality that He's coming again in judgment. In order to make this palatable, 
and seem reasonable and upright, you have to deny. There's this coming a time in which we will all give account. Interestingly enough, as Peter writes in the early centuries of the church, in many ways he was probably addressing some of the false philosophies of the day, the rejection of religious and moral principles and a nihilism, and a belief that life is meaningless, and you need to maximize pleasure and minimize pain and just live your best life now because Jesus said He's coming again, but where is He? The fathers have died, and He's not here. Can you understand and hear the hiss of the snake? He's casting doubt. Some of the believers in the church at that point in time, and He's saying, you know what? The world is existing in some cyclical kind of fashion, and it keeps on going and going and going, kind of like that Energizer bunny. And all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Therefore, He's not coming. We're not going to have to answer to Him. So, recourse is to live our best life now. Peter addresses that argument. He says, they deliberately deliberately overlook this fact. They deliberately overlook this fact. And he goes down through in the context to refute this this teaching and to overlook factual things from the Scripture, his teachings. And what fact in particular? He brings back some of the things he's spoken of in chapter 2. He is saying, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed of water and through water by the Word of God. He takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, and He divides the firmament from the waters on the earth, and, and God forms all of creation as we know it. Then He kind of takes His hands off, and Peter says, that's not true. Indeed, the earth was formed out of water and through, through water, but by the Word of God, the very mouth of God brought all things to pass, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. First strike against their false teachings was, wait a second, what do you mean God will never return in judgment? We can read about it in the Old Testament. There was a universal flood that brought judgment upon the face of the earth because of the wickedness of men. And God spoke into creation at that particular time with a voice of judgment. And it was a judgment of water. And these false teachers are looking past that. I think of today, these false teachers are saying, there's no such thing as a universal flood. There's no evidence forehead. You see, you have to erase accountability to live whatever way you want to live in this world. You have to get rid of God somehow, and the reason and the way that you do is to claim that He said He was coming, but He hasn't come. And Peter said, but wait a second, although He hasn't come, He has spoken into the world in judgment. That judgment it's a judgment of water, and everyone, meaning every last human being other than Noah 
and his family perished in judgment. So they're telling you there's no judgment, and I'm showing you that God speaks into the pages of history and judges. But they want to overlook that. And they want to get rid of that myth, and they want to explain it away. Because if there is a God, and you're accountable to that God, you can't live on your terms. So let's just pretend that there is a God, but you're not accountable, and He's never coming back, so live your best life now. Peter is refuting that argument. He's taking his people back to the book and to the Old Testament and this example of God's judgment that they knew. Verse 7, but the, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just as he destroyed the ungodliness and the wickedness of that age in Genesis chapter 6, God has stored up fires of judgment for this present and perverse generation, and he will come in judgment, and everyone will be accountable. Don't fall for their lie. Don't, don't give in to this notion. Don't become one of those scoffers. Live out your belief and live according to the truth because judgment is coming. Aren't you thankful in the New Testament that these same apostles remind us, although that judgment is, is coming, there's blessing for those who know Him. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we or alive and or left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is a promise, and He is coming. And what's missing in this text but implied is He is coming in judgment. For those genuine believers in the church age who are raptured away, they will stand in judgment before their King. God will address the way they live their lives, but it's a different kind of judgment than the judgment reserved for those without Christ. These false teachers were deliberately overlooking all of this. They were dismissing significant portions of Scripture, undermining the truth of a flood of of judgment, a world that was deluged by water and perishing, and, and somehow convincing the people there that there was no way to live. The only way to live is to live your best life now. Do whatever makes you happy. And Peter is warning of that. He says in verse 8, challenging couple of verses, we're going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to pick up this theme in a couple of weeks. Peter says, but do not overlook this one facts. Don't, don't forget the time perspective that we are living with here. He says, beloved, again, a pastoral voice of concern and authority, beloved, 
Will the Lord one day as it's a thousand years and a thousand years as a day? As he writes in this text, a thousand years of the day, it's very reminiscent of a passage in Psalm 90, verse 4, where the psalm writer writes, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it's past, or a watch in the night. Some would look at this text and try and fit in uh, numbers and try and figure out the eschatological future, but, but what he's really saying is these scoffers are saying, he hasn't arrived, he isn't here, the fathers are dying, where is your God? Peter says, wait a second. If you believe your God is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign of the universe who knows the end from the beginning, you need to understand that your God doesn't live on your time frame. He does all things after the counsel of His own will, and when it happens, it will be decreed that it happens. But it will happen, Peter said. So let's put it in God's perspective and in His eyes. It's not that judgment isn't here, so it's never coming. It's that judgment isn't here, but it is coming, Peter says. God is biding His time until that day arrives, that day of judgments. But why would God do such a thing? Why would God delay His coming and judgment? Peter tells us in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some men count slowness. False teachers were saying that God is indifferent and inattentive in some deistic kind of way. He has no interest in your menial life. He has no interest in what happens under the sun. He has, he has God things to do. What's happening here really doesn't matter. They're dismissing this reality and saying, God isn't going to keep this promise, and if He was, He would have done it before the fathers died. No, that's not our Lord. His patience and His perceived slowness is because He's patient towards you not willing, wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There will come a day when God says, okay, enough. I'm done. It's over. My judgment is upon you. But in His patience, we're a thousand years. This is a day and day and it's a thousand years. He is waiting, and He's waiting for repentance. Now, interestingly enough, is he waiting for repentance of the godless of the world and these false teachers? Remember again, when he speaks of beloved, he's talking about genuine believers. He's saying, God in his patience is not coming in judgment today. He's giving you time to repent from buying into these false philosophies and listen carefully. You're saved through the blood of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And you are never alone, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. To know Him is to know Him for eternity, and if you know Him, you will not lose your salvation. But it doesn't mean you're done with repentance, does it? Boy, what a mess we are sometimes. He's saying, God is exercising patience, not wishing that anyone would perish, but all should reach repentance. Are there implications for the unbelieving world? Perhaps. But again, the text is written to believers. It's hard for us to wrestle through that, but he is speaking to his own people. 
the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief in the night. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth, and listen to this, the works that are done in them or on it will all be exposed. What is this text speaking of? It is speaking of judgment. And everything that has been taking place under the sun will be held into an account in the days of judgment. Why aren't people watching and waiting? Why aren't people looking? Why is it come like a thief in the night? Because they have not paid attention to the holy prophets or the apostles. They have dismissed the truth of the Word of God. They've twisted it for their own pleasure. They have led some of you astray, but judgment is coming. In that same text of judgment in Matthew 24, Jesus reminds us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And you will all stand in judgment for the works that are done on this earth. The evil realities of life will be exposed in the seat of judgment. Now, there are two judgments at the end of time. It's what we call the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. And that's not judgment to believers, those of us who have been raptured and are in the presence of our King in heaven, and He will assess everything that we've done under the sun, whether it be good or bad. It is not a judgment of eternal damnation. It is a judgment of how you've lived your life. Why? Because God is holy and righteous, and His demand is non-negotiable. And at times in our lives, there are things that we do to lose reward. And sometimes in our faithfulness, we gain reward, but we will stand in judgment in front of this raised platform where Christ will judge how we've lived our lives, but so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's a far more grave judgment, and it's the great white throne judgment of God that happens towards the end of time before the new heaven and the new earth. And this is where all unbelievers, including these false teachers, will be resurrected and stand before a holy and righteous God. And the judgment that they mocked, and the God that they mocked, the people that they led astray, and the consequences of their behavior will come full circle. They will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Make no mistake, every human being faces judgment one day. Aren't you thankful that you're facing it under the blood of Jesus Christ? (laughs) And so shall we ever be with the Lord? Perhaps Peter's saying, are you sure? Make sure. Make sure you're discerning, and you can sort this out, and you know that we're all accountable to God. And based on accountability, he finishes his text saying, since all these things are thus to be dissolved in judgment, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness 
dwells. That is always the choice of God's people, the way of righteousness. But you are easily deceived. We all need to hear the warning of Peter and understand the role of church leadership to challenge false teachings that lead astray and to remind all people, saved and unsaved, that the judgment of God is sure and everyone will be accountable with their deeds exposed. Even for God's people secure in the faith, that ought to cause a shudder. Because you're going to stand before your king exposed. For unbelievers who scoff at his coming like those Peter's time, I make you this promise. God always keeps his promises. He is coming again. For those who don't know him, he is coming in judgment. Make sure. Make sure you know who you are. Make sure you know who he is. And make sure that your choices of eternal nature lead you into the presence of your king, not the fierce judgment of the creator of the universe who will do right in his own eyes. Some say, how is that encouraging? How in the world is it pastorally encouraging to remind of judgment? It's encouraging for God's people to know that we will never answer for our sin again. It is under the blood of our Savior. That's an encouragement. It's also an encouragement to godly living, knowing that your behavior will be exposed. It's also an encouragement to the false teachers and those false converts that a day is coming, a day of judgment. Be sure, just like the flood, it is going to happen are you ready? Father, bless us. Make us ready. Make us thankful. Teach us to wait for the blessed, glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us and expects us to live soberly and righteous in this present age. May we do that for Your glory, exposing twisted truth calling all men everywhere to salvation in Christ alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.